This series of weekly podcast news summaries started at the beginning of the global pandemic that continues to disrupt life around the world while killing hundreds of thousands of people. In the last few weeks, another crisis has emerged, one ignited by the murder of George Floyd by a Minneapolis police officer and his colleagues who stood by and did nothing. That gruesome incident, which was captured on video by a bystander, horrified the world and has led to global protests demanding justice for Black people. This episode, we bring together our news team, led by news editor Jasmine Weber, to discuss the biggest art-related stories we've been covering. And she's joined by reporters Valentina Delicia and Hakim Bashara. After our conversation, I'm going to connect with Minneapolis-based scholar and photographer Artyom Tonoyan, who attended the protests and shares his firsthand account of what he saw and experienced. I'm Hirag Vartanyan, the editor-in-chief and co-founder of Hyperallergic. As always, I asked Jasmine Weber to kick things off. So this week, we're seeing people in all 50 states and around the world coming out to protest anti-Blackness, police brutality, and systemic racism. They're simultaneously demanding that George Floyd's killer is held to justice, as well as the officers that were on the scene. And we've also seen people demanding justice for Breonna Taylor, a Black woman who was killed in her home after a no-knock warrant, whose killer's Three police officers have not been arrested, nor have they been fired from the force. In response, we've seen so much important, critical thinking about how we as journalists and how the media landscape can be altered to adjust the language that we use, as well as the tactics that we use to cover these protests. We're seeing a real sea change in the general thinking of the public. Even people like Angela Davis have said that she's never seen anything like this. And so journalists have a responsibility to grow and challenge ourselves simultaneously. Two essays that we've published this week have really gotten to the heart of that. The first one is by an assistant professor at Brown, Vazira Fazile Yakubali Zamindar. She wrote about the origin of the word loot, which is a Hindi word that came into the English language as a word for plunder and mayhem during colonial India. So she really gets to the point that this origin denotes the fact that this word has always been used to ostracize the oppressed. It's been a word to try and demean the behavior of oppressed people who are fighting back against imperialist systems. And I think that when we compare that to the use of the word by someone like Donald Trump, who's calling for the murder of people who are doing this so-called looting. I think that's a really good point, because I think for a lot of the people that have been supportive, or at least seem to be supportive initially, this word looting has been thrown around a lot in circles that are against the protests. So I found it was a really insightful sort of understanding of how the word came to be and how it's been weaponized against various populations. Yeah, and simultaneously, we we can point to all of the museums and cultural institutions that have all of these stolen goods in their collections that have been taken from countries. And the word looting is very infrequently applied in those instances. We've seen that picking up steam as people demand repatriation, but it really 
this discussion of linguistics is more important than ever as we talk about decolonial thinking and how we can make decolonization a reality. That's such a great point. And so we've also seen from William C. Anderson, another writer who contributes to Hyperallergic, an essay on the disregard of power in so-called journalistic objectivity. So he talks about the way that journalism needs to be pushed forward as a field in its entirety to understand the way that it can create and further harm against people who are challenging the status quo. There's a great quote from the article, which is called The Disregard of Power in Journalistic Objectivity for our readers who want to take a look at that. And so he says, the police kill and photojournalists regularly deal in brutality and traffic death images, especially death images of poor people, black people, and people of color as a form of currency in their profession. Images of the brutalized dead and dying can buy awards and recognition in this world. When the opportunity presents itself, many will rush to participate because they subscribe to the doctrine of redistributing pain as it is, not as it should be. Which is an incredible sentence that really does highlight what, what's at stake. And, you know, something about that article that I'd love for us to talk about, Jasmine, is a little bit about how, you know, our own editorial decision to obscure the faces of protesters. And if that's something you can explain to people, like why that decision, we made that decision, but also what it means in the context of photojournalism, where, you know, this notion of purity sometimes is sort of thrown around as if like all images are constructed in its purest form, which we know, those of us who study images know that's not necessarily true. Um, and what, what does that mean for this? Exactly. There's a myth that photographs exist in this somehow objective vacuum outside of their political contexts. But we've seen photographs, especially in the context of photojournalism, can do harm or they can educate people. And I think that photojournalists who are ignoring the calls to blur out certain people's faces are choosing to be complicit. So to explain a little bit of that editorial reasoning that we came to, it's because after the protests in Ferguson, we have found a number of sources who believe that activists who are on the ground in Ferguson, who are organizing against police brutality in the city, were found dead or missing in the following years, many of whom who had been photographed, whether it be throwing tear gas canisters back at the police or with incriminating photographs of them running towards the police, away from the police, etc. And so the conversation now has shifted towards the fact that photographers should not make their goal winning awards for these protest photographs. It should be about exposing the truth about the police brutality that's happening on the ground. The conversation in so many mainstream media sites and channels is about the looting and this very small percentage of people who are going to stores and taking things or smashing windows, etc. But if you look at Twitter and if you look at social media, you see that there are hundreds of video evidence showing police brutalizing people on the scene. And so photojournalists are choosing what they want to depict. And if you're choosing to depict images of protesters that could later have them harmed, whether it be by law enforcement or whether it be by people trying to dox them on the internet, you're making an active decision. And that's something that we did not want to participate in. 
you know, I think one of the things that it's sort of hard for people to sort of understand is the fact that, you know, reporters are not necessarily considered neutral when they're wielding power um, in a way that, you know, really sort of benefits a certain status quo and feeds into different tropes around protests, which is this idea of violent protests. And of course, I don't think we have to explain to people that particularly images of Black Americans and violence, unfortunately, have been coupled in the media for far too long. So this just really, I mean, it just really sort of like just echoes those exact issues that are at the root of some of this anti-Blackness that is being protested. I think that's a great way to phrase it. And so Hakeem, one of our staff writers, actually wrote a bit about this push to anonymize the protesters. Um, There's a new iOS shortcut that was created by a group of tech activists. Hakeem, can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, the group is led by San Francisco-based digital activist and software developer Noah Kong. And he developed this uh, tool on iPhone that allows you to pick any photos from your image library and blur all the faces in it automatically. What the app is actually a shortcut. What it does is shrink the photo to a minuscule size and then blows it up again in a way that makes it very hard to reverse or de-blur. Afterwards, it saves what is called in the professional jargon a flat JPEG, which has no metadata about GPS location or time. So you can share the photo without exposing any information about where and how it was taken. It's a wonderful tool. I should mention that the secure message and app signal, which protesters, some activists are familiar with, has a similar feature of face blurring. And to be extra cautious, You can always take a screenshot of whatever image you want to share and share that copy because it also strips the image of any possible metadata. That's a great point. And I'm glad you mentioned that. And I should just sort of like just mention for those people, it it actually takes the face image and then shrinks it and then blows it back up. So it's not the whole image. So you're not losing the resolution of the rest of the image. It's just the face. And I have to say, I've used that and it works really, really well. And it's amazing how it's able to pick out all the faces and uh, the way it blurs them is certainly much better than most other apps and services I've ever seen do that. It's a good use of the face-detecting technology that has developed in the past few years. Do, do we have a sense of how many people have been using this? Well, Kong told me that about 10,000 images have been processed through the shortcut in the past week. So it's been a lot of people. That's great to hear. It's amazing. And so while we're on the topic of people doing what they can to support the protesters, I would actually invite you, Valentina, to speak a little bit about the theaters and cultural institutions that are opening their doors to people who need a place to rest or to get a drink of water or use Wi-Fi, et cetera. Sure. Thank you, Jasmine. So one thing that we've seen in the past week is a movement that first started with some local theaters in New York City, like the Public Theater, Playwrights Horizons, the Atlantic Theater Company, just a few of those that started participating in Open Your Lobby, which was effectively started as an Instagram account and a Twitter account that was tracking the cultural spaces, particularly theaters, that were opening up to protesters, like you said, making their bathrooms available, their drinking fountains available, their Wi-Fi but also, of course, as a place for shelter, because we have seen protesters being persecuted and not feeling safe out there with the escalation tactics that some police have been using in some of these demonstrations. So 
it was interesting to see how some museums started heeding that same call to open up. We saw the Brooklyn Museum open up its lobby bathrooms last weekend. MoMA PS1 in Long Island City also told us that it was open last weekend in conjunction with a planned vigil in Court Square. And I believe it did so through the weekend, so Saturday and Sunday. But of course, Krog, you actually wrote a great article where you took photographs of some galleries that are all boarded up in Manhattan, which I think is a symbolic way of seeing that a lot of these institutions are not opening up to protesters and, and don't plan on being safe spaces. While, of course, we have institutions, or I should say projects, like the Art Space Sanctuary, which was started by Abu Farman in 2016 to encourage organizations, cultural organizations, to become places of refuge. And we've seen a lot of these, especially smaller arts institutions, declare themselves sanctuaries, which you can see there's a list on the Art Space Sanctuary Project's website that includes the Invisible Dog Arts Center, the Asian American Writers Workshop, Triple Canopy, I actually spoke to Farman for the article about Open Your Lobby, and he he told me about the Poetry Project in the Lower East Side, which is offering a nightly sanctuary space for people protesting and leaving jail in conjunction with St. Mark's Church, where it's located. But he did point out that, of course, letting protesters in is only the beginning. You know, there's also the larger project, which is defunding the police and reinvesting and We have also seen across the cultural sphere calls for institutions and organizations to divest from police in different ways. I think that's such a great point. And I think uh, for those who want to visit the site, it's artspacesanctuary.org. I think that's such a good point that you brought up because I think one of the things walking around and you realize how many art spaces you know, have been boarded up. And it does, it is worrying because we would hope museums would treat themselves as much more part of their community. But it it's interesting how most of the shops that are boarded up tend to be luxury and other retail shops. And it's a little disturbing to me to see museums fall into that category rather than totally. the other spaces like colleges and schools that have been much more open about their relationship with the protesters and the communities around them. Absolutely. I mean, I think actually it's a good segue to discuss how people are responding to the ways that museums are sometimes contracting police, local police departments, which is an issue that's of course come up in the last two weeks as we see protests against anti-Black police brutality and racism really globally. And I think as the defund the police movement grows stronger and gains steam, people are scrutinizing how these museums are working uh, with police departments. So just a few examples that I can name quickly. The Nelson Atkins Museum in Kansas City came under scrutiny for allowing, initially allowing a patrol unit to station on its property during a nearby protest. And it was, you know, the photo circulated on social media, and it was really seen as kind of symbolic of institutional complicity. I spoke to the director of the museum, Julian Suasagoitia, who issued a statement explaining that The on-site security staff had granted the patrol unit permission and that he had immediately asked them to relocate. And we do know that the patrol unit relocated during the weekend. But certainly there was a lot of, there was a very negative response on social media from people, even those that are museum goers, because the museum allowed the police to station there, even though it had the choice not to. So I think that's where institutional accountability really comes in. We also saw the Walker Arts Center 
issue a very public and significant statement saying that it's cut ties with the Minneapolis Police Department, which of course is also important because that was the department that employed Derek Chauvin and the other officers who were charged for the murder of George Floyd. We know that the Minneapolis Institute of Art followed suit. And then we also saw, you know, in a different vein, people questioning a donation made by the Museum of Contemporary Art Chicago to the Chicago Police Department. There was a lot of confusion. An image resurfaced on social media showing an MCA Chicago employee posing with a check and a police officer during the donation award ceremony, I believe, which turned out to be a confusing image. But at the end of the day, the museum did come out and say that they had uh, made a donation to a memorial fund for the CPD at one point. And that kind of opened the floodgates to investigate other ways in which that museum maybe contracts CPD for special events. And I think, you know, the, the group, the teen group that actually started the petition, the Teen Creative Agency, which is the MCA Chicago's youth development program, in their petition said that talking about police relationships is really just the first step and that the museum needs to be held accountable um, for not having a diverse enough staff, for paying people of color on its staff uh, maybe minimum wage, below minimum wage, wages that don't come close to what full-time staff at the museum might make. So I think there's a lot of questions being asked that begin with talking about ties to police departments, but that certainly don't end there. That's a really good point. And I should mention that, you know, it would be great if the Walker and, and some of these other museums would actually commit to hiring more senior level uh, staff that is black. And I think institutions like the Walker, unfortunately, are, have been infamously like, I mean, across the board, white institutions in many ways in a city that is very much changing and they're not reflecting the actual demographics of the population uh, around them. Absolutely. I mean, I think also we what we've seen with the coronavirus pandemic is that a lot of the staff to be cut first at these museums were highly diverse staff, a lot of visitor services department staff, education staff. So there's ways in which museums have been putting out these statements saying that they want to encourage diversity and that they're in solidarity with the Black Lives Movement. But it's also the truth that these employees are often the first to go when we have mass layoffs. So, Hrag, you mentioned the fact that Minneapolis is a changing city right now. And I think that that's something that we've really seen around the world of the public imagination about anti-racism is really developing rapidly. And so we've seen a number of people tearing down statues that are dedicated to Confederate figures or imperialist leaders, slavers, etc., in Richmond, Virginia, we've seen a number of Confederate statues be taken down with the city government and the governor actually agreeing to start creating protocol to take some of this down. Richmond has a huge issue with Confederate memorials. There's been an ongoing conversation about how boldly and how deeply the city memorializes these figures. At one point, Richmond was, in fact, the capital of the Confederacy. We've seen artist Kahinde Wiley last year created a sculpture to try and counteract some of this heralding of enslavers and of people who fought against the liberation of enslaved people in the United States. And so I think that the, the timeliness of all of these statues coming down 
just as Wiley's statue has been erected outside of the Museum of Fine Arts in Richmond, has been incredible to see. I, I think that's such an important point. You know, I think it's it really has been incredible to see. And, you know, and I think in the office, we've been discussing a lot about what this sort of means and what these what what these sort of represent. And, you know, I just want to remind people that like most of these statues were created during the City Beautiful movement, which was a late 19th, early 20th century movement to sort of beautify cities. And it's amazing to me that they chose images of it, of slavers and all these other like abhorrent, like colonial sort of like figures to quote unquote beautify the city, but at the same time reinforcing a certain ideology of like white people on top, this kind of like imperial powers being, you know, somehow celebrated. So it's really interesting to see. And I think the example in Bristol this weekend of Edward Colston, uh, the 17th century uh, slaver who, you know, was really, I mean, I think it really captured people's imagination in terms of like, wow, I have to say, even me, it's, it's sort of, it almost felt really almost like about time. There was a little bit of an aspect of that. And I think one of the conversations I heard about that that I found really interesting is that people make it seem like, oh, he, I think he was responsible for bringing 90,000 slaves or something like that to America. But then someone reminded, you know, everyone else that's like, well, you know how many of those enslaved people never made it to the Americas? And so people compared the image of the activist throwing his statue into the river to the fact that the reality was on these slave ships, you know, enslaved Africans would be thrown into the water for a number of reasons. And so a lot of those people never quite made it. So, you know, also just reenacting the fact that it was a little bit of an education for people about what this actually represented. And it also, at least for me, really was eye-opening that for so long, cities have been talking about these symbols. And here in New York, we've had, you know, panels and the city has been doing reports and these conversations and these community meetings, trying to understand what they should do. And the reality is not a lot has been done. And, and I think there's a, there's a growing frustration that's bubbling up around all these monuments. And the one in Minneapolis that yesterday, the tearing down of the Columbus statue by the yeah. American Indian movement, I think was probably one of the most powerful images because Minneapolis has a very prominent uh, indigenous community and one of the largest for an urban area in the U.S. But also the fact the American Indian movement uh, that many people may know because of the number of things they did during the 60s and 70s. They did this symbolically, and it was it was really powerful to see. I'm wondering what other people have seen uh, in the last week or so around this. It was interesting to see how the method of taking down the statue in Bristol was reenacted in Richmond. By that I mean pulling down the statue, rolling it down the street, and then throwing it into the water. And it was also interesting to see how really this trend or sea change and toppling down these monuments has expanded from Confederate soldiers to the greatest colonizer, Christopher Columbus. And I think, uh, Valentina, you've seen a recent development at your city. 
Yeah, so I was actually going to say that a lot of these Christopher Columbus sculptures, specifically uh, the one in outside the Minnesota capital that you mentioned, that you and Hakeem mentioned, they were donated by the Italian-American community to those places. I went to see today, I'm actually here podcasting from Miami, Florida, which is where I'm originally from and where I've been spending some of the lockdown. But I actually went over to Bayfront Park to see a bronze statue of Christopher Columbus that was sculpted by... Count Vittorino di Colbertaldo, who was from Verona and was one of Benito Mussolini's hand-picked bodyguards. He was one-time bodyguard and apparently also a sculptor. This particular statue, the Christopher Columbus statue in Bayfront Park here in Miami, was uh, painted, was spray-painted in red and vandalized during protests here. And it's caused a bit of an uproar because those who vandalized it have been arrested. So seven people have been arrested for vandalizing the sculpture, which has been painted to read Black Lives Matter and has the letters spelling out George Floyd, as well as a hammer and a sickle. When I was there at the park, I also saw a sculpture of Juan Ponce de Leon, of course, a Spanish explorer and conquistador that had also been vandalized in similar ways. And I have to say, I, I feel like when you go on social media, these statues are kind of coming out of the woodwork and people are sharing images of where these statues are located. And there are long threads on Twitter saying there's actually one over here and there's one over there. And there does seem to be a collective call to action to just bring attention to what these monuments mean and, and why they shouldn't be part of our present. That's a really good point. And I just want to mention for those, uh, the statue in Bristol today, and, the, and we're recording this on Thursday, June the 11th. Today, the city council of Bristol said that he actually fished out the statue of Colston out of the harbor and are currently keeping it in a secure location. And they actually made a statement that it will end up in a museum, just so you know. So I think this is where it's, it's, it's sort of interesting how different governments have been responding because they were concerned that the site of the dumping of the sculpture would, would actually attract too much attention and draw crowds, which I thought was really interesting. That's fascinating. And we actually saw Banksy, the anonymous street artist, suggesting that the statue be fished out and added onto to show the protesters tearing it down. I'm personally not a fan of that idea, um, but I think that it's definitely been a part of a long conversation about what to do about these statues once they're removed from public view and whether or not they should be completely destroyed or whether or not they should be contextualized in a museum. I think that the main issue is that we've seen that museums often don't do a great job of contextualizing racist materials. And so that's a huge consideration is who's going to be writing and curating the display of these objects to make sure that people know that this has not been moved to a museum to continue to celebrate this person, but rather to celebrate the fact that the general population pushed back I think that's a really good point. You know, museums are already overburdened with all the different responsibilities that are being given. And so we have to have an honest conversation about what the role of museums in this are and what resources we can give them to actually do that context. We can't just sort of dump it in a museum and then expect the museum to find the resources to make this happen. So I think that's such a great point. And I want to mention that in 2017, Aaron Short, one of uh, our contributors, had written an article about Confederate symbols and monuments here in New York and what happened to them. And, you know, some people may be surprised to know there are two small streets here in Brooklyn named after Confederate generals. 
But because they're at Fort Hamilton, the army base down by Verrazano Bridge in Brooklyn, because of that, the city actually has no control over renaming them. And there is actually one more site in upstate New York in West Point, of course, the Military Academy, that also has something named after the Confederate General Lee. And again, federally, they have to deal with those. So, you know, this has been a long process. And I think people are getting very frustrated that the change isn't happening fast enough. So I think that when we think about the rapid pace that all of this change is happening at, I think a great place to conclude right now would be to talk about Warren Kanders, CEO of Safariland and former vice chair on the board of the Whitney Museum. We saw some huge news this week that he plans to sell off the divisions of his company, Safariland, that creates riot gear, tear gas, and rubber bullets. So I think that Kander's decision to sell off these divisions of the company has been such a huge deal when we think about it in the context that just a few weeks ago, protesters in Minneapolis were finding Safariland canisters of tear gas on the streets. Kanders has for a very long time made his fortune off of these quote-unquote less lethal solutions used by law enforcement against protesters and refugees around the world. And his position at the Whitney Museum is something that we as a publication followed so closely. So Hakeem, if you want to talk a little bit about your report from earlier this week about Kanders' decision to exit the tear gas business, I think that that would be great. Unfortunately, we don't have too many details about this decision. We know that he's selling those two companies. They're going to be sold to their current management. And uh, the deal is supposed to be concluded by the end of the year. But we don't know. In a statement that Candace gave to the Times, he still showed support of uh, the police, police departments across the U.S. And his other companies will still sell uh, protective gear for police departments. But it remains really unclear if this was uh, like a moment of uh, reckoning for Candace, I can imagine him sitting in front of the TV, seeing images from the protest and thinking, uh, oh my God, what have I done? Or if it's, if it's just a savvy business decision because of all the talk about defunding the police these days. I don't know what you think about that, but we don't know. And uh, we talked to decolonize this place, the group that led the protest against Candace and the Whitney last year protests that concluded in uh, Candace's resignation from uh, the museum's uh, board of trustees. They actually delivered a personal message to Candace and they said, we're not done with you. And they asked him to give all the profits he made out of the tear gas business back to the very communities that those riot gear and uh, munitions have hurt. Yeah, Hakeem, I think that this idea behind what Candor's motivations were in divesting. It feels hard to believe that after he made millions upon millions of dollars by selling this tear gas, as well as through other companies like Sierra Bullets, which he co-owns, which sells bullets to organizations like the Israeli army. It's hard to believe that his reason for selling off these divisions of the company were because he suddenly had a change of heart and has decided that he is a police abolitionist. It's very much the opposite. Like you said, he made a statement that was very much favorable towards law enforcement that by no means disparaged the force and violence being used against protesters in cities across the world. So I think that this idea that Kander Saga is not done is very much possible. He is still very much 
a prominent art collector. He's also still involved at his his alma mater, Brown University, where students are very much opposed to his presence and his financial donations to different departments, including different art departments. So, yeah. One last thing: it's also fair to assume that Candace is going to get be uh, getting paid, going to make a lot of money for selling these companies, although we don't have. Uh, details on that yet. I think that's a pretty exactly. safe bet. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I think that's a safe bet, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, so I just want to say thank you to Jasmine, Valentina, Hakeem for, you know, being on top of it and reporting all the important art-related news uh, during this during this very, uh, I don't even know what to call it, I mean, a- anymore. Does anyone want to chime in and, and put some words to what it is we're experiencing right now? Because it de- definitely feels like there are so many issues going on at the same time, and all of them are important, but it seems to be very difficult to prioritize. With all the pain and anger, I find a lot of hope in these times. If we look at the toppling of racist monuments, look at the tens of thousands of people coming out to protest against uh, racism, this is a, a historic moment and, uh, and a hopeful one, too. Yeah, I completely agree, Hakeem and Hog. I think that as for journalists, for us as journalists, I think we, we are trying to stay on top of things and cover what I think has been the most, the most urgent issues at hand, which is finally um, coming to a reckoning in terms of the racism and the systemic violence and the vigilantism and the police brutality, um, while also trying to you know, cover how the art world is responding to the pandemic and just stay afloat of everything. But I think as difficult and as draining and as exhausting as it has been for us and for so many other people, um, I do feel like we've come to a point of reckoning. I do feel like it feels like change is coming and that makes my job inspiring. It feels to me like we're approaching a moment of historic accountability. People finally expanding their imaginations of what the future can look like. People opening their eyes to what activists have been trying to explain to them for years and years and years. We all know that history repeats itself. And I think that right now we are in a moment where a lot of those patterns are going to shift and they're going to end because of the power with which so many of these organizers are approaching law enforcement, are approaching the government, and are demanding that they do the right thing, and are demanding that things like mass incarceration are abolished. And I think that it's really incredible to watch. Now I want to introduce a scholar and photographer whose images from the George Floyd protests in Minneapolis were published by Hyperallergic a few weeks ago. I'll have him introduce himself. I'm Artyom Tonoyan, research associate from the University of Minnesota's Center for Holocaust and Genocide Studies and an avid photographer who has been taking photos for the last 15 years or so. He told us about his decision to attend the protests. He grew up in Soviet Armenia and witnessed the eruption of large-scale protests that accompanied the various independence struggles that emerged on the ashes of the Soviet Empire. It was only natural for me to sort of go out and start photographing and documenting what was happening. I think documentation of these things is essential and very, very important because 
you know, with the Armenian genocide, one of the issues for the detractors has been that there is no documentation, no photographic evidence, or the ones that exist have been manufactured, and so on and so forth. So it's sort of this mindset has always been a part of me, just going out and trying to document anything. And of course, being a student of history and a sociologist and a scholar, uh, creating document or maintaining documentary evidence is, is extremely important. The other thing is that when I lived in Ukraine, actually, I was on a number of occasions brutalized by the police myself. Of course, being profiled, picked out on the streets uh, by policemen that you know, would always tell me, you're Armenian, what are you doing in Ukraine? Go back. So that sort of has that uh, echo always in the back of my mind. And that was sort of one of the reasons that I wanted to go out and see what was actually happening. He ended up visiting three different protest locations that mild night in May. Each of them proved to be very different, reflecting the range of moods in the wake of the murder of George Floyd. So I went to three sites, and all three sites were different. First, I went, actually, I went with the purpose to go to the, uh, the area where George Floyd was killed. I just wanted to go there, and I wanted to sort of see the atmosphere of what was happening. So I went South Minneapolis to that area and mingled with the people, took photos of the memorial site and, and the mural, talked to people. And it was very, the mood, there were, you could say there were two general moods. The one was extreme anger of what had happened, the injustice. So you had a crowd of people that wanted to absolutely address that issue and that issue alone. So speakers were set up and people were speaking and stuff. The second mood was the absolute somberness. People were just sad of what had happened. And there were crying people, loud wails. There were children with flowers that were just throngs coming and putting the flowers where, where George Floyd was killed. So there was those two, you could say, uh, clashing or maybe even complementary moods. But it was not anything unruly. Uh, the only unruly thing that was about an hour after I had gotten there and I was taking photos, I don't know who, somebody threw firecrackers near the crowds. So people thought, you know, somebody's shooting into the crowd. So there was a mayhem for about two, three minutes when everybody started scattering around. People got scared. But then it calmed down and the thing just reassembled itself uh, sort of organically again. Angry people and sad people. It was an interesting atmosphere to find myself in. But I came away from it extremely just saddened by the whole thing. It was just seeing the little kids around and their parents explaining what is happening or what has happened. It was just, that was too much for me, honestly. It was unbelievable. So the second site I went was the third prison of Minneapolis police where Derek Chauvin and his co-workers, fellow officers, are employed, where the crowds had gathered, and the crowd's mood was anything but somber. It was just angry shouting, the police trying to push back, snipers on the rooftops, uh, just a lot of commotion, and I did not feel safe there. I just spent there about 15 minutes, maybe. Tops took some photos, nothing of any particular interest, but just for documentary's sake. The situation was escalating. There were a number of buildings that already had been on fire. 
and you could sense that the police probably are going to just rough up everybody. And I thought maybe real live bullets will be fired or crowd control prisons as well. So I, I felt like I don't want to become a casualty there, to be honest. It was a safe situation to be there. So I got out of that situation. And as I got out, there were some crowds that were coming towards the, uh, toward the third precinct. And they were saying that there's some commotion in St. Paul, about 10 minutes driving time, maybe seven from that area on University Avenue near the newly built soccer stadium. So I decided to go up there. And when I went there, it was already bad. Buildings had been burned down, crowds charging the police, areas cordoned off, some stores destroyed, discount tire, Verizon, smoke shops, and Target partly, and the police had surrounded Target. So I went through the cordon. I guess they saw my pro gear, photography, thinking I was a journalist and just let it go. So I went and started photographing that area. Near this immediate vicinity of the stadium, just lots of police. They had basically cordoned over the stadium and was the uh, target. And the crowds were... uh, So there was this area, university and syndicates. And I can't remember the name of the other street, but it's a long street. There were just... That area was just blocked off by the police. And people had moved from one area, sort of made a 180 and trying to charge the police from the other side. And the crowds were just unruly charging the police back and forth, back and forth. And then at one point, the police started shooting uh, tear gas into the crowd and pepper spraying those that were closer to them. And that's where I found myself. What was your first reaction to that? I mean, did it seem to come out of nowhere or was this something you were sensing? Uh, Actually, I didn't sense it was going to happen that fast after I got there. Uh, I thought the crowds are just going to gather and just there's going to be a shouting match. But it was anything but a shouting match. Uh, there were some people that were pumped up, were going to charge the police, were going to charge the police. And I'm thinking, yeah, whatever, that's not going to happen. You don't have any protective gear on you, just a t-shirt. What are the, uh, and the police are fully equipped in riot gear and they're going to beat the heck out of you. There is no way you're going to charge. And they did charge. I was like right there. And the cops started shooting tear gas and pepper spray, some of which hit me actually a couple of times. We've been hearing a lot in the media about how journalists have been targeted by police. So I asked if he felt targeted as a photographer in the midst of all this. Actually, at first I thought maybe it was happenstance, happened just because they were trying to crowd control. But when I went, you know, later I saw the news that CNN journalists were targeted, local journalists were targeted and arrested. And then I just re-scanned the entire episode in my mind. And I realized that the first tear gas that came, actually, I was standing by a high school. There was a niche where I had, there was a corner where I had stood. I thought it's going to be safer. And I had my uh, telephoto lens. And I thought maybe it's going to be helping me to take photos from that far. And actually, the first tear gas hit me about three feet from me. And and there was, I, was there anyone around you? Actually, only one other guy. So I ran from that area thinking, I mean, one of the photos that I sent you, there was that tear gas with the uh, no smoking sign on right. school premises. Yep. And you see the smoke rising. So I was standing right there where the first 
canister hit. And so I ran in, uh, behind a smaller car and I picked out and I started again uh, shooting the photos with my telephoto lens. And the second canister hit behind me as well. So, so I'm thinking probably because I hadn't seen any other journalists there at that situation where uh, taking the photos and probably one of these policemen who saw my, my telephoto lens and targeted possibly I, at this point. I don't want That tear gas photograph he mentioned is the cover of this week's episode. And we also tried something a little different with this episode. And the sounds you're hearing were recorded last week on Tuesday, June the 2nd, as part of a protest that started in Lower Manhattan and snaked through the streets of Manhattan all the way up to Trump Tower on Fifth Avenue and beyond. Cities around the world have erupted in the sound of protest. And this is an audio postcard from one of those events. I'm Harag Bartanyan the co-founder and editor-in-chief of Hyperallergic. Thanks for listening, and stay safe.